Registration is open for the CropTech Show 2023. The CropTech Show has been delivering and showcasing technical knowledge, products and practical advice to some of the UK's leading progressive growers and agronomists for the last 10 years. This year we have all new seminars, knowledge hubs, key speakers, exhibitors, sprayer test demos and much more. So what are you waiting for? Join influential farmers at the CropTech Show, which is cemented as the premier technical knowledge event in the UK. This year we return on the 29th and 30th of November at our new venue NAEC Stonely Warwickshire. Head to www.croptechshow.com to register for your free ticket now. Welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show. But just quickly, before I get started with my first speaker, don't forget you can get one basis CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing the name of the podcast episode plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Now, as farmers, we keep being told we need to widen our rotations, but how do you manage risk with reward when it comes to growing new crops? How long should you give a crop in the rotation before throwing in the towel? And where do you even start in deciding what to grow? From alternative pulse markets to wild farmed wheat to the weird and wonderful, in this latest episode, we're going to take a look at what other growers are giving a go and how to measure success when it comes to integrating a new crop into your arable rotation. So for our first speaker today, I have Ed Hutley here with me. He's an agronomist and partner at Series Rural, and he's working alongside clients to grow some quite interesting crops, as well as dabbling in some alternative crops on his home farm. So Ed, thank you very much for joining me on today's podcast. Um, I guess the first question really is why do you think growers should perhaps consider looking at, you know, growing slightly alternative crops? I think... um it's becoming increasingly important for farmers to um, understand where they're going to make a margin. And uh, one of the greatest challenges that we face is uh, finding break crops that uh, provide good entries for wheat, but also provide uh, dependable returns. And when you look at crops like uh, oilseed rape, you know they, they look like on paper that they can um, produce reasonable returns, but um, there's quite a lot of risk associated with growing them and uh, actually achieving um, your sort of budgetary figures. Um, you know, in practice, is a lot harder. And so, um, you know, just trying to find uh, new uh, cropping options um, means that you know potentially you can spread your risk, identify new markets or emerging markets. Um, that might um, uh, either uh, provide more, um, uh, yeah, higher higher value payments, uh, or um, be easier for the grower to, to to manage during the season. Yeah, and this is a really broad question, and we've got a couple of farmers coming up to talk about some of the options that they've tried. But what kind of things are you looking at with your clients? Are there any kind of particular crops out there that you'd suggest maybe looking at? Yeah, so I mean, look, I'm incredibly fortunate. My my family are farmers, uh, as well as me doing 
the work at uh, Series Rural as a consultant. Um, and um, so, you know, I'm, I'm growing some of these niche crops at, on my home farm, and that enables me to be able to roll that out elsewhere. And we're growing uh, things like borage, um, we've grown echium, we've grown um, uh, chia. Um, which obviously is quite an interesting market um, for vegans. Uh, and then we're doing things like ryegrass seed, um, uh, which, yeah, goes for a, sort of amenity uh, use, so that sort of football pitches and that sort of thing. Uh, and then, you know, in the past, we've done linseed and ahi flower, um, and we've looked at things like, like quinoa and, uh, yeah, various other crops. So I think that, um, yeah, generally these things, uh, once you've grown one of these sort of lesser-grown um, uh, crops, you tend to find that you, you have the confidence to then bounce onto something else and, and give something else a go. Yeah. And so in terms of kind of each individual, you know, farm business considering all the options out there and finding something that might fit well in that particular system, like where do you even start with that? Because there are so many options out there. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the the things that we've seen in the last couple of years has been guys have been trying things like soya beans and that sort of thing and I think they've had limited success with that and um, I think it's a case of you know you've really got to look um, in your locality as to um, you know where uh, you know, what, what others growing around you um, successfully that is isn't necessarily of the norm uh, but also um, you know trying to find uh, people to grow these crops for there's a there's a limited number of um, people that will offer contracts to grow you know niche crops things like borage and that sort of thing um, so I think it's kind of a case of like building you know, finding a relationship with those guys um, you know making sure that you're you're compatible to work with one another uh, and then you know sort of getting them out to have a look at your site check the suitability before getting going uh, and then you know just being pragmatic about it, you know, if you were growing a large area of rape and you're looking for something to de-risk your business, you're not going to just straight swap uh, one of these niche crops for rape. You're, you're going to potentially just build it up a little bit, learn as you go along, because um, you know some of these niche crops do have um, very different growing cycles. Uh, they require specialist harvesting equipment or um, you know technical expertise that might not necessarily be um you know readily available through your uh, agronomist or uh, you know if you're doing agronomy yourself you may have no no previous experience of doing that so um it, yeah so it's kind of a case of um you know when you go to events um you know, spotting out these people that are growing different crops talking to people about it forming a, an initial relationship and then and then just look, looking to take small steps from there yeah, and I guess a lot of these people are quite keen to get more growers on board, so they'll be more than happy to help out. Yeah, exactly. I, mean, I think that the clues in the name, right, like niche crops, you know, they're, they're not they're not intended for everyone. And I think it's really important that anyone that wants to look at potentially growing different crops, they understand the risk associated with growing them. Um, and, you know, you can't grow vast areas of them because generally the volumes of the crop uh, that is required is relatively limited. Um, and so, um, you know, you need uh, to deal with guys that are going to be able to handle, um, you know, the volume that, that uh, uh, you know, the crop area that's being produced across across the country to ensure that, um, you know, the price doesn't slip away because they're producing more than is being used um, and also that they can place it. Yeah. And it's obviously, you know, quite a risky business growing something you've never tried before. 
Um, but are there any kind of particular ways that growers can help to de-risk that process? Um, I mean, it's you know, there, there, a lot of it is about speaking to people and uh, and learning learning of others. You know, agriculture is like such an under, unusual industry where uh, you know not only are we all sort of competing on a global market against one another, but we're also uh, in the same position that actually we, we were able to support one another and uh, so it is a case of you know, taking advice off um, you know existing growers and, and, and you know, putting yourself out there um, you know, sometimes you've got to travel to go and have a look at these things um, uh, to give yourself that that experience and, uh, and that knowledge of, of what you're letting yourself in for and I, I say by having a measured approach to its implementation that really eases that because um, you know if you're having uh, you have a problem it's a small problem not a big problem yeah and I suppose with these crops you generally start with quite a small area and then if it's successful then you build it up and exactly exactly and, and I, I think you gain you gain confidence you know borage for example the most important thing with with borage is is the swathing um and making sure that you get the swathing timing right um and uh, borage is an indeterminate crop so you know, it needs swathing in order for it to be ready for harvesting um and making that decision about when uh, is the right time can be really difficult and a really daunting challenge for someone that's never done that before. Um, but you know the um, uh, guys that we grow that the borage for at home, you know, they're really engaged with helping you make that decision. And actually, you know, we've been doing it for a long enough period of time um, that you know now I have the confidence where I'm growing borage elsewhere to have a look at a crop and say, yeah, you know, we're we're getting close. We need need to start you know lining up a few things to get the crop swathed and get it get it ready to go. Yeah. And a lot of the crops that you've mentioned are, you know, like flowering crops. Do you think that there could ever be an opportunity um, for like, you know, kind of private funding where people will pay a farmer to increase their biodiversity on their farm or whether the government might consider it as part of environmental schemes to grow more crops like this that kind of flower for long periods? I, I'm, I'm not sure in, in regard to that, to be honest. I mean, I, I think that um, uh, the thing that, you know, I've gleaned from my experience is that um, having a diverse rotation, um, you know, whilst it presents challenges for the farmer in terms of storage and being able to handle small um, quantities of different types of crop and that sort of thing, that in the field, undoubtedly, um, you know, there, there is a huge amount of environmental benefit. You know, the amount of insecticides and things used on, um, you know, floral crops like borage and, and echium is almost non-existent. Um, you know, comparatively to, um, you, know, grow, you know, growing rape, which, yeah, is, with the example I said at the beginning about being difficult to grow. Um, and so, yeah, undoubtedly, there's some environmental benefit. Whether that then equals um, you know private funding or um, you know some form of, um, yeah reward payment you know i'm not not immediately sure but it's going to lend itself very nicely to the sustainable farming uh, incentive no insecticide payment so that, that that's an incentive for um you know uh, farms to, to consider that you know that you could grow some of these niche crops without the requirement for insecticides yeah definitely and in your mind when you are you know growing these crops how do you kind of measure the success of that crop would you say you know look at its individual margins or 
um, impact across the whole rotation or spreading workload? Like, what would your measure of success be? So, you know, I think um, it's very easy with crops like beans and things like that. When you look at them in isolation, they don't necessarily look tremendously favourable. And you always then say, well, you know, you've got to judge it on the basis of it within the rotation. So looking at when it's partnered with a wheat crop. Uh, I think, you know, to sort of counter that, I think it's really important that the crop does work in terms of margin as a standalone crop and um you know farms that i look after we do make sure that we do um you know analysis of the actual performance of crops on a year-on-year basis and the margins for some of these needy crops um is nearly always comparable to that of wheat if not better uh, and you know for you know a lot of the concerns that are sort of held around the niche niche crops in general is their ability for them to uh, established consistently or to produce yield consistently but um you know i would say that yeah the returns um you know have been over and above many of the um yeah more traditional break crops um you know during an extended period so i would say that the risk is a lot less than, than what what people think but the the, the the sort of the flip side is you know some of these spring established niche crops they require um you know good seed beds um, and that can pass on to the following crop. So you can actually make savings in the following crop if um, you know you've you've got the land in good heart. Um, you can save cultivation, so save your fixed costs going into the following crop. So um, yeah, the example that I regularly use is we tend to direct direct sow uh, wheat crops into um, stubbles after uh, after borage and uh, and indeed cheer if we can get it off early enough. Um, which, yeah, it, there's a cost saving on the other end. So, you know, despite saying it, you know, it's really important that it stands up on its own, um, you know, it's also important to look at what it brings to your rotation in the round. And, um, you know, I think some of the break crops um, that are more traditional, they don't offer that in the same way. Yeah. I guess there's almost like a bit of a kind of mindset aspect as well in that, you know, some farmers will be quite curious about trying new things, Um or they just might find it quite exciting to be growing a different crop, whereas some would, they might have a very large farm that they kind of want to keep more streamlined. My father always always describes um, uh, a lot of niche crops as sorry crops. Um, (laughs) Sorry sorry that you grew them, or sorry you didn't plant the whole farm to them. Uh, So... um, that is just, you know, that is that is just unfortunately the way the way that they work, and that's why we have rotation, um, you know, full stop. So yeah, it's um, yeah, all in balance. Yeah, and finally, I guess one of the challenges with you know trying out a new crop is we've been growing some of these well non non niche crops for decades, and there are so many seasonal influences that can kind of make or break its success. So how long would you suggest kind of trying a crop for um, before either throwing in the towel or thinking actually, yeah, this is quite a good addition to the rotation? I, I, I think that, um, you know, using using cheer as a specific example, um, you know, we, we, we grew some cheer in the first instance at home 
um, with a view that, that that was something that was going to help out someone that was providing a contract with us. We, we had a previous track record of growing um, niche crops, and they said, well, you know, we'd give it a go. And the first year, we learned a lot, and we sort of said, well, 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 we'll definitely give it a go next year, regardless of the outcome in year one. Uh, and year two, you know, we, we'd learned a few things, and things had, uh, had really improved, and, you know, there were aspects to it. We could we could see how we could um, intertwine it with our existing uh, farming system um, but then you know there were questions as we move forward about you know, how financially stable was it um, you know is it is it um, as um, consistent in performance in terms of um, other crops and so I think that it's really important with any of these niche crops that um, you don't just try it once and if it doesn't work give up uh, because I think that um, there's a lot of learning that goes on in the first few years and um, you know, you've got to give the crop a chance. You know, you, if you've not had that experience growing them before, um, you, you, you need time to sort of bed that in. The flip side is, is that you need to be analysing the performance, as I said, on a year-to-year basis. And if uh, you look at it in across sort of four or five years successively, um, you look at the average performance of the crop during that period and it doesn't match up against um, yeah, a more conventional break crop, uh, then you have to question whether or not you know it's it's delivering on on what it requires. And I think that you know, that's certainly what I've seen where people have been growing things like soya is that you know they, 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 that we're learning a lot with it, and it, and it therefore takes time um, you know to see the results. And it's it's important you don't give up too soon. But it, but you know, if you're finding that you're not getting the returns, um, that it that it's going to be made at the right at the right moment. And I would say that. You know, it's it's four or five years worth of learning before you really know whether or not this is something that's going to work, and um, you know that invariably means that you've tried it across, you know, a, a large area of your farm. If if you're even if you're growing relatively small areas. Yeah, I suppose in a way it could kind of be comparison uh, comparable to oilseed rape establishment in that growers almost had to kind of relearn how to do it once we lost seed dressings and. Now, a lot of people are quite successfully doing it, but it's just taken those sort of few years to get back into exactly. it. Exactly. Mean, you know, I think that you, you, you mustn't be frightened frightened to try things. You know, and I, and I think that, 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 is, that is probably the most, most important thing is, you know, have, a, have a, a model of which you think is, you know, the, the way that you would, you would like things to be established on a consistent basis, but don't be afraid to try a small area you know, with a different establishment method or, um, you know, with a, a different um, a different drill or anything like that, because uh, all of these things, they, they can all make sort of little, little gains um, that can either, um, yeah, tell you that it's not the right thing to do or tell you, tell you it's the right thing to do. Now for our next speaker, Nick Padwick is farm manager at the 1400 hectare Wild Ken Hill Estate in Norfolk. The estate has 600 hectares of arable cropping, which now includes wild farmed wheat, as well as 400 hectares of rewilding area and a further 400 hectares of traditional conservation. Nick, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I just wanted to start really by getting a bit of background on kind of the estate and the farming system that you're running there. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I'm Nick Padwick and I am the farm manager at Wild Ken Hill. So we are situated in Norfolk uh, on the west coast of Norfolk uh, between 
Snettisham and Heacham. Uh, we, we border the Sandringham estate um, and we're, we're just shy of 4,000 acres. Um, we've, we've probably got 1,000 acres of rewilding, which is uh, made up of 500 acres of woodland, 500 acres of arable land, which was not very productive, um, full, of, full of black grass and brogues. Um, so we, we decided to uh, look at a rewilding program for that. Um, and the, the rest of the estate is, is arable. Um, we're on sandy silts. Um, and the very traditional, we did have a very, very traditional crop rotation uh, for Norfolk. Uh, lots of lots of green barleys, lots of sugar beets, um, a little bit of wheat now and again, depending on the soil type, um, and a sputtering of oats and beans and peas and you know whatever the farmer before I came here uh, was farming. And I've been here now. Gosh, I'm in my I'm in my sixth year, so I've been here five years. Okay, brilliant. And you say um, the rotation was tradition, uh, quite traditional before you joined. So now, what's your rotation looking like, and how do you kind of like view rotation? Well, look, I've always been throughout my whole career in agriculture. It always makes me chuckle when you speak to farmers, which is great. And I don't have the discipline, so I'm not. I'm certainly not knocking farmers that can do this. Um, it's just because I can't. And you speak to them and they say, yeah, what's your rotation? And they go, yeah, well, two weeks of barley and a week and that, you know, then they reel it off and it's, you know, it's, it's absolutely rigid. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I am so far away from that, it's untrue. So uh, we, we are, we're going through a massive transition at the moment. Um, and, and before this transition, we would have had in our sort of 2,000 acres, there would have been uh, 500 acres of sugar beet, and then the balance would have been made up of maybe some winter barley, depending on the otter price, um, a bit of wheat, depending on the soil type, and uh, maybe a legume if they got a good contract or not. So it's quite fluid, to be quite honest. Um, we're even more fluid now than we were. So we've we've cut out. Uh, this is the first year we've we've taken sugar beet out the out the out the rotation. Um, we feel it's just doing too much harm to our soils, um, and we are concentrating in on uh, rye. Rye good for us. Um, certainly um, fits in very nicely within within our cover crops. Our spring oats. They, 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 they are figuring quite nicely in our rotation at the moment. Um, uh, the usual spring barleys, uh, we're doing probably a few more acres of spring barley than we used to. Um, and then some sort of heritage, not heritage, but some, some wheats um, uh, grown with wild farms, uh, plus also some wheats that I grow from uh, seed that I've kind of blended myself um, that is Siskin, Crispin, and Stays and Graham. Um, and they all kind of, I grow them all together. So I have no idea now what the percentage of those those varieties are within my conventional wheat crop. Um, 
but but it, it's moving. We're trying all sorts of peas. We're trialing, uh, you know, polycropping with peas and barley, peas and weeds, and beans and weeds, and uh, peas and oats. And you know, I've got. I, d I don't have a set rotation at the moment, and I don't know whether I ever will, to be quite honest, because it it all depends on the market and all depends on what I'm seeing as we're regenerating our soils. Yeah, no, I love that. And I wonder if more farmers will kind of go in that direction with the kind of fluidity of the rotation. and Because at the moment, it's really, I mean, it's obviously dictated by market and then obviously the weather. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to and, see. And, and our soils, you know, we're, we've seen it since I've been here with the weather patterns we're now currently getting. Um, you know, we could we could invest a lot of money in a in a in a wheat crop uh, or a barley crop, uh, and we get sort of two weeks of three weeks of dry weather, and we then start losing tillers. Um, and before you know it, um, we you know we're we're down to a single stem. You know, we we had an example of that was. Several years ago, we had it was a lockdown year. Actually, uh, we had a wheat crop that uh, looked utterly amazing. First wheat after rain, when we used to grow rain, um, and it looked incredible. And that's when we were just coming away from using, relying on too much input. So we, we were reducing the amount of herbicides and fertilizers we were using. And we had a great stand of wheat. Looked amazing. Um, and Boris locked us down, and we, the sun came out, if you remember. Yeah. And we were dry on our sandy silts for several, several weeks, and we just had tillers die away. And the, the and we'd already invested quite a lot of money in fertilizers and chemicals on that one particular field. And after everything we'd invested, we ended up yielding sort of five ton a hectare because all the tillers had died away. So that really pushes me down to the, the soil element of, of of Ken Hill and what we're doing with our sand silts, um, and how we can really be focusing on on soils. Yeah, and you said you're kind of trying, you know, lots of new things. You've got intercrops and heritage varieties and things. When you you kind of decide that you're going to grow these crops, how do you? kind of balance that risk with reward and how do you judge success like how long would you give it in the rotation before it's you know um before you decide whether it's worth continuing with and yeah just how do you how do you make that decision well i'm i'm incredibly lucky that the uh the the owners of Kent hill are on the same journey that i'm on in terms of building soil health and reducing our reliance on synthetic inputs and that's really important because yes we have to be profitable of course we do but when we're budgeting and we then decide to trial a field of maybe wild farmed grain or uh, some pink peas or a polycrop or whatever we're trying to do we always look at the worst case scenario so um you know i'm quite long in the tooth and, and we get quite a lot of people salesman who'll come around and tell you some great deals on linseed or some of these amazing niche crops and they all sound 
utterly, utterly incredible and why wouldn't you grow them until you actually do grow them? Um, and then, you know, I've, I've been bitten so many times uh, by the promise of jam tomorrow. And uh, I'm now really focusing in on what works for our soils. So I, I, I'm really targeting now on varieties and crops that, that, that prefer or are comfortable growing in our sandy silts. You know, we, we, we grow wild farmed grain, um, some milling blends, some spring wheat blends, um, and that works well for us, it does. Um, and I also help out uh, on a farm in Peterborough on the fence. And we also grow wild farmed crops there. And they, they, they are utterly incredible on those soils compared to my soils. So, you know, same drilling date, same seed rate. Um, and, and obviously I'm going to get a different result because of my sandy silts versus the plants. But, um, you know, that, those, those varieties seem to be working a lot nicer, heavier yields, they're, they're cleaner uh, than, than my wild farms weeds. So uh, I'm just wondering about the varieties, whether they've got enough bigger uh, compared to, you know, growing them on, on fence soils. So I think soils play a huge part in, in what we what we're looking to grow in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think uh, you mentioned kind of, um, you know, seed sales people trying to convince you to grow the next big thing? Do you think that they should accept some of the risk if they want us to grow it? Because I, I know that we've had, you know, people approach us because we grow kind of quite a few different crops. They say, grow this for us and you'll get whatever return. And we say, well, pay us per, per hectare and we'll try it. And if it's good, then we'll do it. But it's a lot of risk for the grower, isn't it? To just, especially on kind of smaller farms, yeah, it's an absolute, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and again, in my career, I've been very fortunate working for the cooperative group back in the day where we would trial some of these and, you know, the yields of, of two to three tonne a hectare of something that's going to, you know, they're going to pay you uh, two and a half, three thousand pounds a tonne. You think, well, that's just amazing. Yeah. And I'll take down to it. And actually, when it comes to it, it barely yielded you know, 0.2 of a tonne. Uh, and, and we're taking the hit because the seed obviously is incredibly expensive. Um, always is, isn't it? Um, and, and as you say, the risk is always on the farmer. Um, so yeah, I mean, if, if, if these if these niche crops are are as good as people make out, then then absolutely you pay us on a per hectare basis, it's a guaranteed amount, and we'll share any any kind of divisible surplus from what you. You know, kind of what you read, a bit like the contracting farm people, like those would give farmers a bit more confidence to have a go and grow some of these niche crops. Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned wild farmed wheat um, a couple of times. I wanted to take a particularly closer look at this as it's something that's kind of been in the press a fair amount recently. And I know a fair few growers are trying it now. Um, I've heard the returns can be quite good. 
could you just tell us kind of what what is wild farmed wheat and what attracted you to growing it? Yeah, look, I, I met um, I met Andy Cato um, on a uh, online on a lockdown meeting that he was uh, trying to reach out to growers, um, and we were kind of doing what he was doing anyway. But I was struggling to find a market. You know, he, uh, whatever I was growing would have to go to Frontier or Bledels or, you know, the big boys. And it would just be in the same heap of weeds as my neighbour who was who was using, you know, maximum amount of fertiliser and chemicals. And I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. So uh, I quite liked his story. I quite liked what he was about. Um, I liked the idea of, uh, we, we do a lot of, we were doing a lot of work with strip strip tillage, uh, certainly to grow our sugar beet when we were growing sugar beet because our soils, quite a lot of our soils are blow away sands and silts. Um, so we, when we were establishing our sugar beet, we were trying to uh, strip those so we weren't getting the blow. Um, and I was thinking, well, you know, we could grow wheat crops like this or oat crops. So we would put in some clover as an understory, something that my father would have done back in the 60s. Um, and we would then strip directly into that. But then how do you control the strips uh, in between the rows of wheat or oats? And then I indeed developed this mower, um, strip mower, which, which attracted me to think, well, okay, so we control that now as well. I like the idea of, Okay, you're only getting half the yield because you're only bringing a crop on half the half the area. But actually, rather than building fertility in the soil, uh, two years of fertility, one year of crop, uh, if you were growing organically, um, actually you're building fertility all the time because you've got your row of row of herbage lay, um, and then you can grow a wheat crop in between it. That kind of attracted me to it. Um, so I kind of Kind of like that. I like the price we were getting for the wheat, so we could actually we only needed to grow at that point. I think we only needed to grow like two tons a hectare to to compete with a conventional wheat, and that kind of made sense. So I thought, well, yeah, okay, we'll reduce that and then call it a ton a hectare because we didn't know whether it would grow, and that that kind of worked well for us. Um, in the first year, we're now year, we're now year two, and we've had mixed results. Uh, but then we've had mixed results on our conventionally planted uh, spring barley and oats, peas, and we, you know, you have your mixed results across across your farm. Um, so we've had big mixed results on our on our wild farm grains. Uh, our spring wheat looks very good indeed uh, and I'm beginning to think that that our soils here at Ken Hill uh, and the rotation that we're trying to put in with lots of covers, lots of chances to build fertility, lots of opportunity to have a root in the ground 12 months of the year, capturing all this amazing solar radiation as we finish harvest uh, is the way forward. So actually spring cropping is, is probably easier for us and gives us more opportunity. 
So uh, the spring wheat, I wanted to trial that this year. And that looks very good, very, very good indeed. Uh, no herbicides, no insecticides, no fungicides, uh, no fertilizers. Um, so yeah, um, and, and, you know, I like the story, I like what they're about. Um, and, and it kind of fits us at the moment. It doesn't fit everybody, but it fits what we're trying to do. And you know, with our with our with our trying to build biodiversity above the ground, um, which we are doing, and it's incredible seeing. Um, I'm sat on the combine at the moment, and you know, the the amount of wildlife I'm seeing from the combine scene is just incredible. Um, versus neighbours and other people's farms we're farming for them uh, where there's a noticeable reduction of wildlife um, for whatever reason um, and that and also then trying to do the same below ground with our soils building that biodiversity um, that's what we're now focusing on in on so you know it, the wild farm is a great story and you know we're, we're trying to support and, and use the niche elements of wild farms to, to grow some crops for them. Yeah. No, I think it's it's just nice to see kind of um, these less conventional systems being able to get a premium for their products now because that was kind of something that was talked about for a long time and now it's actually happening. Um, do, do you think that, you know, wild farmed wheat, for example, would work in a more conventional system? I know yours is very... Well, basically zero input. Um, do you think, you know, a more conventional farm? I'm not saying the most conventional, but you know, someone that uses more herbicides and things like that. Do you think it would work for them, or is it very much like a almost organic thing, really? Well, no. I mean, there are protocols to growing uh, wild farm grain, and you know, we, we've got we've got neighbours who are conventional farmers that that take a year out or two years out after a, a two-year legume lay under countryside stewardship, maybe 15, and then they go back into it with a with a wild farm wheat. And their you know the fields around them are conventionally treated. Um, so that kind of works. But there are there are protocols to growing wild farmed cereals. Um, and as long as you follow those protocols, then then yeah, it kind of fits. Um, I, I think farms should also should try a uh, you know a field of, of wild farms and see whether the system fits them. You know, I've look, I've been I've been farming since my 41st harvest, and I haven't had so much fun in agriculture now that I have done for the last 30 years because. The answer is not in a bottle or a bag, and, and you know this is a lot more fun than than, than you know uh, uh, growing growing crops using using those synthetic inputs. Uh, uh, you know, it's getting my brain active again. You know, we're 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 focusing in more on on soil health and, and soils that, that are absolutely the key. The key to everything we do is based around soil and. Uh, we can't keep on relying on uh, all our all our inputs. We've got to we've got to try and see whether we can reduce uh, or take away those those inputs. And you know, there's lots of 
lots of farms that are doing some amazing, amazing, amazing things. Um, and even if you reduce your fertilizer by 10, 10 20, 30%, it's, it's a great thing. Or you're using cover crops again, what a great thing. Um, we're, we're going a little bit more, we're a little bit more hardcore uh, when it comes to that. Um, but, but, you know, farms out there are really starting to change and I think they are, and certainly what the people I'm, I'm talking with are, are recognising that, that maybe fertilisers are um, uh, a great, but, you know, there, there may be an, uh, an alternative. Yeah, no, I love that and the kind of the fun the fun element back in farming again. And it's definitely a fun time to be an arable journalist as well. So thank you, Nick. It's been really good to chat with you. <laughs> Absolute pleasure. <laughs> and now finally we're going to focus on pulses and opportunities to grow more homegrown protein. And to guide us through this, I'm pleased to have here with me. Pulse's UK President and Pulse Project Manager for LS Plant Breathing, Michael Shuldham. So Michael, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Um, I just wanted to start with kind of an update on what the latest is with Pulse areas. Um, There's been a lot that could kind of influence things in the last few seasons. We had really high fertiliser prices and everyone sort of thought, pulse area might go up because of that but then we also had really high grain prices um so yeah what's been happening and what do you think pulse area might do going into next season as well well hi Asan. thanks very much for having me on first of all um a, a good question a timely question as, as harvest going on uh competition for land use is always quite a big factor in what happens with the pulse area uh, so we'll see what happens with Pulse rate plantings in the coming weeks, um, but then it goes on into autumn. What the autumn conditions are like for drilling wheat or drilling cereals? I think you find that we have good conditions in the back end of autumn, and um, a lot of cereals will go in the ground as, as sort of the major gross margin crops. Um, that tends to have a link to how much area is available for, for pulses to go in with, um, especially with beans. It tends to fluctuate more on that. Um, but it also links to what other viable break crop options there are for farmers. Um, and I think when you when you look at the numbers, generally pulses come up pretty high up um, with all the sort of positive benefits that they, they bring to the soil, to the following crop, um, as well as as being a crop in their own right. Um, quality of harvest this year will have an impact as well. Um, as you alluded to that, weather conditions over the past couple of years have been challenging um, and we'll see more with springs over the coming weeks as people get towards harvest um, what what the quality is like. Um, I, I think there's, there's not too much flying about at the moment but um, we'll hear a lot more as uh, the weather cheers up as it's seeming to start to now. Um, so your question at the end is, is what's going to happen and um, well, I'm going to stay well away from guessing that at this point but uh, there are there are sort of good varieties available and good options where where growers can look to choose on on different agronomics and and factors for their end use markets or or what they're growing for so 
everything's in place for for a good season with pulses, um, and I think where growers get the chance to look at them or, or fit them in, there'll be um, there could be a, a decent amount of demand. Yeah, very pragmatic answer. <laughs> but it seems like there's a lot of seasonal influence on the area rather than kind of the market influence. And I don't know, it seems like there's all we hear is about like plant-based proteins and things like that now as people decide that meat's the devil and all that. Um, but it also feels like we're maybe not tapping into that as much as we could. So do you, do, would you agree with that? And if so, what do you think is kind of holding back the pulses sector in that respect? Um, I think I think the food sector is starting to put a lot of resource into you know, what's been sort of dubbed as alternative proteins. Um, and they are proteins in their own right. I think that means alternative meat. Um, a lot of that's sort of taking the protein out of the pulses for, for other foodstuffs. Um, so, from that point of view, uh, I think it's not right that it's maybe not been tapped into more that it's just in, a, in an earlier stage um, as, as food processors work on it. Um, probably the flip side to that is I think industry investment in the UK is actually lagging a bit. Um, we don't have sort of a fractionation plant here. Um, I think we're, we're probably a bit behind in that sense. Um, so yeah, creating that new demand pull. But I think, as with all food items and newer food items, then it, it takes quite a lot of time to develop um, to find out what works and then to match the demand with the supply. Um, so I think there's a lot of exciting projects going on in the background that perhaps aren't seen um, and, and leaves pulses on the cusp somewhere of, um, of the big time. Um, yeah, you sort of said what's holding the pulses sector back at the end there, I, and I think I can probably pinpoint supply side what that is, um, would be around the loss of chemistry available to growers. Um, they need to actually look after the crops. Uh, beans aren't a minor crop, so they don't get minor use exemptions. And that means for a relatively small area, the return on investment for of new chemistry for beans isn't as attractive to the researchers and to manufacture the controls. So all of the benefits that you get from pulses in terms of human health, but soil health, having a flowering crop, nitrogen fixing, um, et cetera, et cetera, that's all also becomes defunct if, if growers don't get the support to actually grow the crop viably and successfully. And I think that's, um, that's a legislative area that that needs to be looked at in a lot more detail. Um, I think it's sort of a misunderstood area or, or brushed under the carpet. Um, but, but growers certainly need the support to get the best out of these crops. Um, again, having said that, there's, there are still good gross margin opportunities out there um, who, for growers who want to benefit from those those positives that pulses bring to to their race, to their predictions. Yeah. And we'll talk about um, LVC in a minute, but are there any kind of new markets that you think growers could be potentially looking at, say, if, you know, one of our listeners was tuning in to potentially explore a new pulse type in their rotation? Uh, I think so. It's always worth, uh, in my opinion, just ringing your merchant and just seeing what is available out there and, and what they can find. 
find. Um, I know you just mentioned low visine and convisine at LBC um, that we've been working on for quite a few years now, and actually that potentially brings in um, benefits to human consumption as well as to animal feed markets. Um, yeah, on that, I think it's it's really beneficial to have a call and know what you're growing for. Perhaps if you're in the north and you're you're going to grow for human consumption where the brooked beetle pressure is a bit less you can look to varieties with earlier harvesting and, and big seed size like yukon um where you get the premium opportunities of, of a human consumption crop um so it is worth knowing uh, and this goes for peas as well and probably more so as well um it is worth knowing what your what your end goal is and then aiming to achieve that um with the, with the way you grow the crop and the varieties you choose. And you just mentioned that um, LSPB as a seed breeder is concentrating your efforts on low visine and convisine beans. Um, I recall you saying when we met a few weeks ago, demand over the next decade will probably increase substantially as it has in Canada. So could you just give us some more information on what LVC is um, and why you're expecting it to grow and why you're kind of concentrating your breeding efforts in this area yeah definitely um and i think it's a, a prudent place to start would be the general desire to have less resilience on on imported soya um or certainly unsustainable important imported soya um, and that's probably where huge opportunities arise from particularly for, for pulses in the uk um our breeders have been working on on LBC varieties for for many years. As with all pulses, it takes many years to get there from the first cross to a variety, um, plus bringing in a, a new trait. So, yeah, basically, um, low bison and convisine. Bison and convisine are two anti-nutritional factors within the uh, cotyledon of the bean. Um, so you can't just mechanically remove them like the whole they're, they're throughout the bean um, and they actually for for humans who are alone in, in an enzyme or deficient in a en- particular enzyme they can cause barbism which is a sickness in monogastric animals so pigs chickens they can uh, reduce feed efficiency and it's one of the reasons why um, beans have a limited uh, limited inclusion rate in in those animals diets um, so what uh, what our breeders worked on was reducing the levels of visine and convisine down to very very low levels which where they're, where they're not really noticeable by the animal um, or human eating the beans um so yeah having achieved that and, and now bringing varieties which sit right up there near the top of the list um, with good agronomics uh brings brings massive new opportunities for, for growers to get around that um, and where you can increase your protein from a from a bean source in in a diet, that is making us be able to reduce the amount of soya required for that. Especially with protein soya prices sort of start to fluctuate from the ridiculous. So um, being able to control that with with homegrown beans, and um, if we can increase the area and increase the quantity of of LBC, makes sense. Um, Makes for a positive 
positive story for growers, especially, I think. So one of the one of the great things about these varieties is that they meet all of your current market outlets. So there is not really a downside, you could say, um, that uh, that would stop you from growing them. So they um, they just offer you that extra potential of um, of increasing inclusion rates in diets. I mean, some work that was done in Germany um, on laying chickens managed to comparing high bison and low bison beans managed to increase uh, the inclusion rate of beans in some some layers to 30 percent and actually that was the top level they put in the trial and didn't see any negative impacts where 15 percent of um, high bison beans they started to see smaller and fewer eggs produced so if you you, you look at that you have double double the amount of um, of inclusion in in those diets but there's a lot of work now going on um, to really assess that and quantify it, um, which is which is very exciting. Um, and finally, pulses can be quite risky to grow, especially you know spring crops with these much drier springs and stuff that we're seeing. So, what would your advice be for kind of removing some of the risk out of growing them? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's an interesting question around risk. I think any any spring crop has risk linked to the weather because you've got a shorter growing season um, and, and sort of any winter crop has risk associated with cold winters and, and increased disease pressure a longer growing season. So in terms of that, I think it's very much for the farmers to look at what works with their rotation, uh, their workload and, and what they're wanting to, to get from the crop. Um, in terms of what, what growers can do, we've been working with the YEN programs uh, since the bean, the bean program's inception. We were actually involved in, in starting that up some five years ago. Um, and I think that they're a really great way to learn about your crop and look in really great detail at the soil and deficiencies in the plants and the beans. Um, there's a really positive knowledge exchange associated with it. So um, I think that's certainly a great starting point. Um, to find out exactly what's going on in your pulse crops. I think for a while we've perhaps overlooked the micronutrient side. Um, it's, it's important to treat them as a cash crop and to look after them uh, from the nutrient side, even where you don't need nitrogen application, which is one of the huge positives of, of pulses for the environment as well, not having to produce the nitrogen. Um, it's still important to have good biology to help the plant utilize the nitrogen that it's um that it's fixing um and that helps help the plant and be resilient to, resilient to the challenges that are presented um so yeah I'd do a big push to look into the pulse end and you can get um supported so we support a load of crops each year to go into that where, where our varieties have been grown um it's just a great way for the farmers and us to get more information about what's going on um there's some really interesting field trials looking at bicropping at the moment, um, particularly with cereals and beans or boats, I think is the one that everyone quotes, but uh, beans and wheat uh, as well, uh, where farmers look to sort of mitigate the risk in the field by having two crops there. Um, I think they're a really good thing. And our focus has to be on, on making sure that the absolute best genetics are available to the growers whatever situation they're putting them into.
that's all we've got time for for today I'm afraid but before you go just a reminder that registrations for this year's crop tech show are now open it's got an exciting new venue this year at Stoney Park in my home county of Warwickshire it's taking place on November 29th and 30th and we've got more than 150 exhibitors attending as well as an excellent seminar program with speakers from within the industry that will discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing the arable sector and i hope to see you there